Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Do your joints hurt? Do you sometimes get up in the morning and feel like everything got so much stiffer in the last couple of years and you're just having trouble keeping up with moving the way that you want to or that you used to? Well, today we're going to learn a whole lot about what are some of the new techniques that are done to help keep the joints healthy and even to actually help them when they start to give us those aches and pains and what we can do to really help ourselves stay active, which is the key to keeping ourselves healthy over time. We have Dr. Farzad Perarian. He is a primary care and sports medicine specialist. He's at the Infinity Life Center. And today we're going to be talking about joint damage, what happens with joints, what are some of the things we can do to help regenerate those joints, and how does that all fit into keeping us healthy and active throughout our lives. Now, today is going to be a recorded show, so we won't be taking callers live, but if you ever have any questions or have a comment that you'd like to make, you can always head to the website at talkbackathawaiipublicradio.org, and you can send us any questions or comments, and we'll get right back to you. First off, welcome to The Body Show, Dr. Fer- Dr. Perarian. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you've done some training. I want to talk a little bit about that. You're from Pennsylvania, my home state, so I've got some, uh, I've got some connections there. I have a brother who's from there. Tell me a little bit about your trajectory in medicine and how you got to be where you're at. Well, I started at an osteopathic medical school, which is very uh, it's different than an uh, MD school. Kind of different. Yeah. Kind very of a lot of overlap. We'll a, talk about that yeah, in a we minute. We'll yep. talk about that. Um, my, I, I always knew I wanted to do sports medicine. I didn't exactly knew, know what that meant, though. To, now that I'm a sports medicine physician, it, it was a little different than what I thought. But it's still very interesting. You're, I love using my hands. I'm, I'm very into uh, being athletic and making sure my patients uh, are athletic and active. Are you sporty yourself? Yes, yes. What kind of sports are your faves? I, I used to play all sports un- until uh, my size became a factor of, uh, you know, my height. I would don't play basketball as much anymore. But I, I, I right now I, I primarily do uh, non-team sports like golf, tennis, and uh, things sure. Of that so nature. over the years you've stayed active, mm-hmm. maybe played team sports when you were younger. Yes. You know, I find that a lot of folks who go into sports medicine have that ability to understand how joints move doing various sports and activities. So mm-hmm. you know, you know what it's like to play basketball because you have when you were younger. You know what it's like to play soccer and do these different activities, and you also now have a greater understanding of how it affects the joints. Exactly. Now, before we talk about that, let's talk about doctor of osteopathic medicine. It's very similar to medical doctor. We do a lot of the same training. And for all intents and purposes, there are plenty of physicians who go to osteopathic medical school and wind up doing the exact same thing that I do. We have Mm -hmm. some in my office. And then there are some that continue to do something different that you learn in medical school that we don't, and that has to do with osteopathic manipulation. What is that, and why is it you still do it? How does that help you in your particular field of sports medicine? Uh, Osteopathic manipulative treatment, OMT, uh, involves a hands-on way of diagnosing and treating a patient. Uh, You get to essentially feel the muscles and the uh, vertebra and the bony structures and make a diagnosis and treat by hand. 
Uh, it's very. Uh, it can actually not only do can I utilize that in the musculoskeletal way. I can also use use that for uh, any respiratory or sinus issues, uh, migraines, asthma, or abdominal pain. Um, how it help me helps me in sports is that it gives me a great idea of of how the body works as a unit, a very holistic way of know, knowing how to feel for a patient, not just having to take an X-ray or MRI, but I can actually at least diagnose and uh, notice dysfunctions in the anatomy. Uh, by hand. Now, how is that different than other types of manipulative medicine like chiropractic? It it is similar. Uh, I've, I've, from what I've noticed, they can be used equally. Uh, but however, chiropractic medicine, from what I've noticed, involves more alignment through thrusting. I, I know there are some chiropractic uh, chiropractic doctors that do not uh, utilize thrusting as much. Whereas uh, OMT, you not only do the high-velocity thrusting, but you also use various other techniques such as muscle energy, counter strain, uh, still technique, and uh, just some soft tissue techniques that can uh, help the, the body. So basically, if someone came in to see you and had some muscle or joint troubles, you may, depending on the source of that, have the ability to help them therapeutically by doing a type of manipulative treatment in the office with your hands, knowing enough about the body and how you can utilize muscles to counteract one another, et cetera, exactly. you could actually make them better during that visit. Yes, certainly. I, I that just did that today. A patient came in with neck pain, and as I was always uh, trained, you always look at the joint above and the joint below as well, and I treated not only the neck but his thoracic uh, spine as well as his uh, occiput. So, so the head, head, the neck, and, and the, the, and the, and the uh, upper and, and upper the, back. Mm-hmm. And by doing a treatment, you were able to resolve it. Certainly. And I didn't. I used thrust technique for one area, but I used muscle energy for another. I, based, based on what his diagnosis was and what, what condition the patient is in, you can adjust your therapy. So now in a lot of conditions like that, I might be tempted as a medical doctor to prescribe anti-inflammatories, a group of medications we call NSAIDs, or non-steroidal mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory drugs or medications. Are those useful in those situations, or is there really a, a counterintuitive reason why I shouldn't? Uh, they, they are useful. They do have their, their times where they are needed. Uh, Any time an acute issue happens where there's an in, in, uh, inflammation. Like you sprain your ankle, you threw your back out, you did something that suddenly causes some type of inflammation exactly. or swelling. Where, the, where the, the etiology or the cause of the problem is inflammation. Then I believe it certainly is uh, useful. Um, the, the bad thing is it can be harsh on the stomach. There can be side effects and things of that nature. Mild, but... You know, that you still have to worry about. Any time you want to, you give medication, you always have to worry about that sort of thing. Sure, of kidney issues you have yep. to be careful with. Blood pressure can go up, mm-hmm. and there are some other potential stomach side effects. Ulcers. So, stomach ulcers, you mentioned bleeding, bruising, mm-hmm. etc. So, in some cases, anti-inflammatories would be great. In other cases, you really shouldn't use them. Agreed. What are some of the situations where you would not want to use an anti-inflammatory? Well, and uh, other treatments that I uh, offer, I do uh, regenerative biomedicine injections. And during those in- injections, you want to promote inflammation to promote healing. Uh, you kind of rec- you recruit the growth factors of your body to come and heal the tendon or ligament that's damaged. In that case, you wouldn't want to take uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Because the inflama- not all inflammation is bad. Exactly. In some cases, it may be inflamed, but bringing enough healing to the area, that it's actually productive. Yes. And in some cases it isn't. 
So knowing and differentiating between those two and maybe potentially what further therapy you would consider can really help to distinguish them. Yes, it is very important to always know your diagnosis whenever you give the give the medication because sometimes you you can kind of dismiss all pain with uh, with a anti-inflammatory and they get better. But in knowing the truly knowing the diagnosis really helps the uh, well long term because if you feel like Superman because right. you took you know eight hundred milligrams of ibuprofen and then you lift up a heavy box and you took it because your back hurt. You might re-injure your back Certainly. and you feel like Superman. You don't realize it. And it's not that I've ever done that ever. Okay, I've done that. So, you know, sometimes these medicines are great, but you got to recognize that you could get yourself in trouble depending on what you do when you take them. Yes. If you're supposed to rest, yes, you should rest. Now, one of the techniques that can often be done to help get the correct diagnosis, people are fairly familiar with x-rays. It shows bones. It does not show soft tissue. does mm-hmm. not show ligaments. That's other tests that do that. But x-rays are a good basic way to look at joint spaces. How do you use ultrasound in your office to help differentiate the etiology of whether it be a joint injury or a diagnosis issue in somebody who has pain? Uh, mu- musculoskeletal ultrasound is very interesting in that you can visualize muscle tears, tendon tears, or ligament tears, or even just any damage or inflammation in the area, just by putting a wand over a body part. It's very, it's not invasive. There's no radiation involved at all. I can do it in the comfort of my own clinic, right in my office. And you can move the joint. Yes. I've seen this in, in real live form. And the most curious part about it is that you know, a lot of times we, we think about ultrasound as this fairly not very sensitive or specific way to look at things. And yet when you're using it in muscles or joint areas, you can actually almost, the, the level of st- sophistication these days, you can almost see individual muscle fibers. I mean, you can you watch can. someone's arm or elbow move. The advantage being that in some cases, and I often tell people, there's a difference between an anatomical problem and a functional problem. Your anatomy can look completely normal, but nothing works. Or it can work completely normal and look totally wrong. So sometimes you need to do a study with movement, with some type of movement of a shoulder, movement of a quadricep muscle or thigh, and that's how you figure out what's going wrong. Tight shoulder is one of those situations that I often see where we may not completely appreciate what's going on with the tendons when we just do an x-ray because we're not seeing any tendons, we're just seeing bones. So when you do an ultrasound, you can actually physically see the muscles move and you can help diagnose a problem like that. That's one of the best aspects of ultrasound. Uh, it's dynamic uh, ability abilities to when you can visualize muscles as they move. You can put the ultrasound on the front of the shoulder. If they're sti- if a patient is sitting, is sitting a certain way, you see one muscle. If they move their arm, you'll see another rotator cuff muscle. It's very interesting that you can see the uh, the motion of the muscle. See as it's as it as you're doing certain uh, maneuvers with with the with the muscle, and you can see where the tear is along along either the tendon or the exactly. And um, even more importantly, you get to see a very important structures such as arteries, veins, nerves, and whenever you're doing uh, procedures, you can avoid them. Or or uh, or it can pinpoint you onto where the damaged area is, so you can get exactly the location you want. So the ultrasound helps not only diagnostically but also therapeutically, because if you're trying to do an injection, you want to make sure you get it to the right space. 
I think the other really cool part about it, and maybe this is just me, but I love the fact that you can actually see it. You're like, my leg hurts right here, and you point to it, and then you can see on the ultrasound exactly what's going on. And it's not that people need to see it in order to believe it, but I think it really helps people to understand how the, me- how the mechanics work in their body, what's torn, what's different, what could be changed. And it really just helps them to also understand how to fix it. It really does. So are there other modalities that help to take a look at spaces? Like when we think about ultrasound, that's one way we can look at joint spaces or muscles. How do we use MRIs in the world of sports medicine? And do we overutilize them? Are we doing too many? It could be looked at that way. Um, there's a reason why insurances don't always cover MRIs and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, I, I believe the MRI is necessary and uh, essential, essentially for, uh, let's say specifically for a, a shoulder joint. You would get an MRI if you would be thinking of a, a labral tear. And you would add contrast if it was a labral, labral tear. But if it's if you if you if you think it's just like a cuff uh, rotator cuff tear or something of that nature, you don't necessarily need contrast. Are they being overutilized? I think with how much uh, athletes are getting paid these days, and and their and the, how prolific the NFL or any uh, professional sport is, they their lifespan of their sport of their of their career is so short that they want to know the answer right away. Sure, if you're a high level athlete, if you're right. a professional athlete, I can see that. Yeah. I think sometimes if you're not and your shoulders a little tight and you can kind of move it doing some physical therapy, doing some exercises, yes. using ultrasound for diagnosis might be a great initial approach and when and if that's not working and if you're seeing that there's still persistent pain or your thoughts were on you described a very particular problem like a labral tear that maybe that could be a further diagnostic element. What do we see on MRIs that we don't see on ultrasounds or x-rays? What's the difference? How do you describe that to the people you see? So that they understand why it's, you know, you're in this big, long tube. It's kind of a long cylinder, and some people get a little freaked out. It can be kind of closed off on both ends. Um, But what else can you see? Why is MRI such a superior test that we like to do when medically necessary? The detail, the increased detail of the MRI is is quite impressive. So like tendons are on there? Yes. You can see all soft tissue. Discs, nerves. All of that. You name it. Whereas CT scans and uh, x-rays are primarily for bone issues, MRI can visualize minute details of every tendon and ligament in the body as well as va- uh, vasculature. And it's, it is uh, very necessary when you're doing something, uh, when you're doing a procedure, when you're doing anything of, of, of high importance. Well, sure. I think sometimes, you know, there are some studies that have been done that show that for low back pain as opposed to shoulder if you were to MRI 100 people, 50 of them will have stuff on their MRI with no symptoms. And if you, if you were to go ahead and, and tell them exactly what's on there, and that's fine. People can know what's on their MRI. That's great. The problem is that knowing that you have this back problem that you never felt before may make you afraid to exercise and use your back correctly. So now all of a sudden the muscles are weaker and you've almost by power of of suggestion in a way, gotten back pain because you're Mm -hmm. afraid to use it because you were told you had some problems. So for low back, I know for a lot of cases, we have to be careful because even in the perfect, perfect scenario, if you have a slipped disc that is acutely slipped and, you know, you see a neurosurgeon and they put it right back in the place, 
Still, even in the best case scenario, orthopedic surgery for the back or neurosurgery for the back has about a 50% success rate because there's so many different structures that the back is a combination of integrated muscles and joints and discs and nerves that you think you're fixing what you see as the problem, and yet the actual problem might be located somewhere else or might be affected by whatever your fix is. So we have to be careful with some of these tests. Almost too much to know in some cases. Mm -hmm. So it's only a select group of folks who should get advanced imaging studies with the intention, as you mentioned, that they may have a procedure, they may have a surgery, they may have something done or their activity altered because of what is diagnosed. So not everybody has to get an MRI of every joint. There are other things they can do. Yeah, that that's a, that influences our decisions when when we uh, order an MRI. We have to think, well, if what are we, we going to fi- do with it? Whatever right. we find on here now, you know, we're responsible for, and 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 is it really the problem that the, sure? Are we is this a red herring, or is you know are we falling for? Um, I don't want to say ignorance is bliss because you always want to know. You but do, but time, are we going to find something that's not the source of the symptoms? Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned labral tear. A lot of people don't understand what the labrum is. Okay. What exactly is that? So the labrum is almost, it's a cartilage, it's almost the glue that keeps the joint together. So I'll use the shoulder joint again. It's a ball and socket joint, so it's a very unstable joint, and the ball kind of sits in the socket, but it doesn't really have a place for it to sit. So it needs a glue around the ball for it to sit in the socket properly and for it to stay. Uh, That glue around it, or the cartilage, is called a labrum, and that can be damaged as the more and more shoulders come out of uh, the the joint, the more they dislocate or they sublux, uh, they scrape some of that labrum off each time. And as it more and more scrapes off, more and more damage is, is uh, made to the bone, to the muscles around it, and it becomes a very unstable joint. And, and, and if anyone's ever seen someone dislocate their shoulder, it's a very unpleasant uh, Yeah, it doesn't situation. tickle. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> no. doesn't tickle. Yeah. Can you repair a labral tear? Yes, that's, that's, sur- that's uh, usually surgical. Do they just add more labrum? How do you, how do you do such a thing? It depends. It depends if how much of the labrum's gone, and how much of the bone. Because every time you scrape some labrum off, you can scrape some bone off with it. So if there's a certain percentage of bone missing, then the surgery becomes very detailed and very. Dis- it is already a detailed surgery. It becomes even more difficult. But they usually put some anchors around the shoulder joint to make to keep it in place, and then reconstruct the bone if they can. Uh, it, just it really sounds depends. very complicated, yeah, and exactly. it usually takes three to six months of rehab, and you're off your sport. It's a, it's it's a shoulder surgery is a very invasive. It's it's one of the worst joint surgeries. All right, so don't injure your labrum in your <laughs> shoulder if you can avoid it. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Farzard, Farzard Perarian, and he is a board-certified primary care sports medicine specialist, and he's working at the Infinity Life Center right down here in Honolulu. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about doing other types of therapy for joints. What are stem cells? What is platelet-rich plasma? How is it related? And is this the stuff all the politicians are arguing about? Or is this a totally different type of procedure that might actually help people with their joints? We will be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Farzad Pererian, and he is a board-certified primary care sports medicine specialist, and we're talking today about what to do to keep your joints young. You know, as we get older, we get wear and tear to our joints, whether it be knee joints, ankles, backs, hips, you name it, shoulder, etc., and a lot of times it impairs us from continuing to doing to doing the activities that we really enjoy. And we live here in the islands. It's great to be outside and enjoying our weather and really keeping our body healthy. So what else can we do when we get these types of joint pains? Is the answer really just injections of steroids or surgery or replacement? Well, not necessarily. So today we're going to be talking a little bit further about what else can be done in the joint area. A lot of common weight-bearing joints that can become a little bit arthritic as time goes on. And are there options for folks? So before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the ways that we can diagnose problems, how MRIs and ultrasound can be really helpful. Let's now talk about how we can treat them. Dr. Farzad, tell me what stem cell therapy is and how is this different than what all of the politicians were all worried and arguing about and banning from years ago. Because it's not the same thing. No, no, it is not. Okay. Stem cell injection therapy is very new and innovative. It's been uh, more public in the last 10 years, I'd say. Uh, it, it uses its, You use your own body's stem cells. So that's the key. That's we have stem cells in our body. Uh, we don't. Yes. We might not know it, right. but we have stem cells in our body. So we're not taking stem cells from another person. We're taking them from ourselves. Exactly right. That's why it's not what everybody was mm-hmm. politically arguing about. Sometimes you hear stem cells and people go, no, 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 no. This is not approved. This is not allowed. But we have stem cells inside of us. Yes. Where are they hiding out? Where can we find them? They can be in the blood. And the what we utilize at the Infinity Life Center is... Uh, the highest concentration is in your fat. So the fatter you are, the more stem cells you have? You could look at it that way. You know, there's got to be some (laughs) positive to that, right? You got extra stem cells, sir. It's okay. You've grown some stem cells. Okay, so we have stem cells that are in our body, fatty tissue, different areas of the blood. And how does that help us? These cells are very special in that they can morph into a different type of cell. So you can take it out of fat, for example, and inject it into a damaged area, another area, another body part, and it will benefit it, and it can regrow it. So we're not talking about like, hey, I want to have a lip injection because I want bigger lips. We're talking about, okay, we're not putting fat somewhere that it doesn't belong. We're putting it somewhere that's injured, and it may actually help to heal the injury. So where would I put such such cells? So when you extract the fat, we take it to the lab and... Uh, extract the stem cells from it. Sure, you have to process it. You're not just, you know. And it's a pretty uh, in-depth. Withdrawal here, put it somewhere else. So there's this whole process by which you are extracting and or refining the tissue or the fat that you're taking from the person to be able to concentrate those stem cells. Yes. Okay. And then it is taken and using ultrasound, we can see exactly where the injection needs to be and you can... Take go pic- right there. Go right there. You can take a picture of it and put it on your fridge if you want. You can see and it. then not create any more stem cells because <laughs> you decide you're not going to eat what you've been eating to grow all the fat for your cells. Okay. Well, maybe not everybody. But where, for example, would we be doing these injections? When we talk about doing it to damaged areas of the body, 
Are we doing it to joints? Can you actually put it into knee joints that bother people, elbows, whatever? Yes. Yes, you can put it into joints. Uh, Even more impressively, you can do an IV infusion just into the vein, and it can go to damaged uh, body part. For example, we've treated COPD. We've treated heart failure and and things of that nature. So it could even – we may inject it to some area that's that's a problem, whether it be a muscle or a joint or somewhere of that nature. Yes. But in some cases, you can actually infuse it, and by doing so, the body figures out where the damage is and the stem cells go there, and then it's not like you would inject it into a lung. It would go there naturally. Yes. Now, when you do stem cell therapy for particular areas of the body, how do you know if it worked? There's ways to compare. Uh, if, If we're talking about a musculoskeletal case, you can, t- you can take the, previ- the MRI that was previously taken before the injection. Uh, there's not necessarily an MRI taken every time per injection, but if there but was... But if you happen if you to, had, if you, had you could do a pre-injection MRI, yes. see that there was some damage, loss of cartilage, loss of you know, some of that extra lubrication in the joint, do your injection, and what would you see and how long afterwards? I tend to wait about six months to really okay. give, it, give it the body a chance to heal itself. Uh, you, you'll see benefits within two to four weeks. You should. Uh, everyone's, every case is different, of course, depending on the amount of stem cells the patient has as well as the amount of damage that was there beforehand. However, about six months after, I can. Uh, it's almost keeping surveillance. I can take another MRI and see exactly. I know where the damaged area was, and I can compare. And what I will see is that the t- in, in the tendon, you'll, you'll notice there's striations or of the muscle, the, just the, the natural... Uh, f- you know the folds of the muscle or the, the the structure of it, and you can tell that structure is not the same whenever it's damaged. You can see little tears and things like that in it. Whenever you see that, whenever you get the new MRI, you'll notice that it's it looks almost brand new. Could you see the same if you did ultrasound? Yes, you can also see an ultrasound, and uh, that's almost a preferred way because it's very it's very it's quick. You're in the it's office, quick. exactly. You get an answer, and you can move that muscle around and watch it move and see how exactly. it functions. Is everyone a candidate for stem cell therapy, or should only certain people do it? Everyone is not a candidate. I, you, I would never, I can't say, you know, uh, 100% for anything. Uh, most people are. Uh, we can always find a way to help someone in, in, in some way. Uh, in some cases, the damage can be so extensive that we will give the risks and benefits or, you know, pros and cons of how, what percent of how much it's going to work for the patient. Um, we always want to help, and if a patient wants to go go for it, we will give them our hundred percent uh, effort. And you'll try it certainly. But if you're if you've got severe degenerative arthritis and you're, you know, ninety eight, and you can't get up and walk around, you can try it. But you're probably not going to be as successful as if yes. you have mild or moderate arthritis and you're, you know, forty eight, and you can still get up and walk around. So the the therapy that you might want to do to strengthen that muscle or the recovery might be easier to do when you're younger, and you may not have had as much extensive damage when you're older. Do you have fewer stem cells as we get older? Yes. Uh, as we age, all of our cells tend to uh, either decline or decay in some way. Um, so you, even though, you know, if you have a lot, some some people actually take some uh, medications or uh, supplements that have been there's no studies on it, but that have shown that to increase the stem cell number. So, 
uh, as a trial before they're doing yes, something like this yes. to try and see if they can increase their chances of having a beneficial effect. Yes. Now, stem cell therapy is often talked about in the same sort of conversation as people may discuss platelet-rich plasma as a treatment. How are they different, and how might they be the same? So the the beauty in, in the of it of them being the same is that they both are components of our body, and that's why they they really promote healing, and it, it, they almost fit the holistic osteopathic thought process of the body yeah. as a unit. It's your that, own stuff. You can't reject it. It's your stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the case of PRP or platelet-rich plasma, you obtain blood from the patient, and you separate the cells of it. You, there's one percent of the blood is platelets. So Those are can, our blood clotting factors. Yes. That's why when you cut yourself, you get a little clot and hopefully you get a scab. So platelets help exactly. to mediate that. Yes. And we know that they're involved in healing because it's how you heal from cuts in your exactly. body. They come together, they aggregate, and they just kind of say, okay, we're going to stop this bleeding. We're going to take care of stuff. Can be good, can be bad, depending on right. where they aggregate. Right. People talk about antiplatelet therapy that is something that tries to help prevent heart attacks and strokes and stents from clotting off in that case because mm-hmm. that's where you don't want platelets to aggregate. But in certain cases, you do want them to aggregate. So if you were trying to have platelets help restore your body's function, you would draw some blood and then you would extract the platelets and what would you do with those? And just like stem cell, you do an ultrasound-guided injection and you know exactly where the damage is, and you inject that area. The beauty of platelets, uh, the interesting part is that not only do they clot, but they can also send messages to growth factors in your body to come and uh, heal the area as well. Uh, they're mostly known for clotting factors and known to, to, to either create clots or or something bad, but in this case we use them, utilize their good uh, tendencies, and that is to promote healing. Well, sure. If you think about it, if you cut your hand by accident and the only thing you got were platelets, well, you would have a scab forever because (laughs) it wouldn't heal. So maybe the platelets, would they in that situation be like, hey, let's get the skin cells to start regenerate. We've got to cover this scab. We've got to heal this so that there's no more cut in the skin. So inside the body, they could also send out the same message. Hey, we need some healing. Let's get some of these growth factors to come into this joint space, maybe restore the cartilage that's been damaged or worn or torn or worn off or however that's happened, and then rebuild it. Yes, that's exactly right. When platelets provide this service for the body, if it's such a good service, why doesn't our body just do it automatically? That That is an interesting uh, maybe thought. it does. I mean, I guess it if you get blood extent. into a joint, for example, that may right. be part of this healing process. But it sounds like this is augmenting the body's natural way to heal. It is. It is. And Which is how it's good. It's holistic. It's all natural. On the other hand, it makes me go, well, why didn't the body figure that out all by itself? I mean, come on. The, sometimes the damage isn't extensive enough for the body to th- to react to it. Uh, this is a good point about inflammation. Uh, let's say if it's just a partial tear of a one tendon in your body, it's not the body's number one priority to be, oh, let's send all the platelets to that area. Sure. So that might be one uh, thought process of it. Another thing is that the concentration of platelets in the blood is not very high, whereas the injection is con- so concentrated that it would promote healing more. So I think both of those it factors. It could be that, Sure. If you don't have as many, then you may not get the same benefit. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting way that we have found to 
to have the body help to heal itself yes. by doing something that is just uh, it's it's augmenting or integrating our own natural healing in such a way that it helps joints to function better. So we talked about how stem cell therapy you could do if you did an ultrasound or an MRI, you could go ahead and repeat that in six months and see some improvement. Is that the same thing that you can see with PRP injections? Yes, you can do the same as well. One way is to do the MRIs or to do imaging. I also like to look at the quality of life of the patient to see what they were able to do before and after. Because really the goal is, and I'm, I sh- I'm sure you agree, well, we don't treat uh, an, an we image. We don't treat scans We don't treat an MRI. Right. We treat the patient. So if they are doing their activities of daily living, they're staying active, they're doing, and they're happy, then that's really the goal was achieved. Sure. If grandma can't get up and down the stairs and now she can go up and down and hold her grandkids or can walk around, then that's absolutely a success story. Do we often think about some of these therapies? Like I often wonder, you know, just recently in Time Magazine, they had this article about exercise being the cure for everything. And really, truthfully, when you think about it, it kind of is. Being more active helps the body. It lowers your risk of metabolic issues, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. We know that exercise and activity actually helps the body, even in some cases, to avoid getting cancers that are related to metabolic mm-hmm. issues, breast cancer, colon cancer. There's some other sorts of things you can reduce your risk for by doing exercise. So I often wonder, if you're at the point where you can't exercise, you talked about a lot of those sports that you love to do, if you can't do it because your knee joint is bothering you or whatever the case may be, could some of these different therapies be a way to get you to the point where you now can do the exercise to build up the muscles and strengthen the joint? They really can. They can bring someone who is normally stationary and doesn't do much into a, a different type of person. It, it, can, it can change your life. Because then if you couldn't participate in the exercise, you couldn't get the benefit of the exercise, now you can do so without harming or hurting yourself or your body. Now you can do those activities and still build up muscles. Exactly. Muscles, I think, a lot of times people underestimate the power of muscles to heal joint pain. And heal maybe is a, is a word I shouldn't use. But, you know, I often tell people if your quadricep muscles, if your big thigh muscles are really, really strong, and you do any exercise or activity, if we were to scale that one to 10, and we said your thighs are like nine out of 10 strong, if you decide to do an activity that puts six or seven level of stress on your knee joint, your thigh can take that because it's nine out of 10 strong. But if your thigh is only two out of 10 strong, your activity that's a six or a seven is, and, and I say this and I tell people numerically, I'm just making this up for illustration. But if you were to do something that's like a six or a seven and your thigh's too strong, four of that stress, five of that stress goes to your knee joint. Wears it down, wear and tear. So that strengthening the muscles is really the key to stabilizing the joints. And in the case of the upper thigh, that helps to stabilize your knee joint. But again, you said joint above and below. It also helps to stabilize the hip joint. And in doing so, reduces the risk for having bone loss, osteoporosis, strengthening, making those muscles really work well. One of the keys to having functional status as you get older, being able to get up, get out of a chair, walking independently, not needing to use a walker or a cane or be in a wheelchair. None of those are bad, but if you could avoid it, most people I know would want to be independent with their activities. Now, prolotherapy is another interesting thing that 
that I don't know very much about at all. Mm. But it's kind of along the same lines of stem cell and platelet-rich plasma. It's a way that's trying to heal the body's muscle, tendon, or ligament damage. What is prolotherapy, and how does that help? Now, this is another form of regenerative biomedicine injection therapy. The difference is that you do not use uh, components of the body. You use a, an organic substance. It's uh, a dextrose mix. It, so essentially it's sugar water. But the idea is, is still the same. You uh, inject uh, the damaged area, proliferate it, cause, inflammation, infl- cause inflammation, and uh, it works in this, a similar way. It's just not as I, – I, I personally think it can do just about what PRP does. However, since it's not – the the parts of the body, it's not its own. I don't think it works as well. So, again, the same idea. Not all inflammation is bad. Exactly. Some inflammation may bring some of those healing cells to an area. And in doing so, the healing cells, you know, collect this little army of folks that helps mm-hmm. repair whatever the damage is. Mm-hmm. So if you were to do an injection of the dextrose, you know, it's not just you're putting, you know, sugar water into your joint and it's feeding the joint and it's improving. Not necessarily it's creating a state of inflammation with the hopes that that is going to be productive in the healing process. So you wouldn't do any of these therapies and take anti-inflammatory medicines. Certainly not. Because that would be like, you know, exercising while you eat a piece of cake. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Why do people watch the Food Channel at the gym? Why do you hate me? I don't know. <laughs> but it, it wouldn't make sense to do those two things together. They kind of cancel one another out. Okay. So any one of those therapies could actually be fairly, fairly helpful in certain select individuals. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Farzad Perarian. He is a board-certified internist and sports medicine specialist, and he works at the Infinity Life Center. Today we're talking about what are some of the different ways that people can improve their joints and how do we diagnose joint problems how do we treat joint problems and problems other outside of the joint, whether it be muscle or tendon, et cetera? And what are some of the things that we can do to really help keep our bodies as healthy as possible? Now, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the activities that we like to do outdoors and how can we do them safely and avoid head injuries and concussions and tearing muscles and all sorts of things that we don't want to do, but sometimes happen. There's accidents. And what else can we do to try and help this? All right. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio, and I'm talking to Dr. Farzad Perarian, and he is a board-certified internal medicine and sports medicine specialist. He's practicing at the Infinity Life Center, and that's right downtown in Honolulu. It's actually at the Alamoana Boulevard, and where are you guys located exactly? We are in the Nauru Tower. We're in the Nauru Tower. Beautiful tower, gorgeous view of Alamoana, and a wonderful place to to just be outside and enjoy the view. Now, we've been talking a little bit about muscle and joint injuries and troubles. We talked about trying to diagnose these problems. We talked about different forms of therapy, stem cell therapy, platelet-rich plasma, uh, prolotherapy. We've talked about osteopathic manipulation, hands-on treatment. And let's talk about another aspect of your practice, which is don't get hurt in the first place. (laughs) Sounds kind of basic. We could have started there, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than we think. So one of the areas that sports medicine covers are trying to make sure that people, particularly, you know, you can have school age athletes, you can have other folks who want to join different, uh, you know, non-professional teams, trying to make sure people are healthy enough to do exercise and activity and to participate in certain sports. And there's a lot that has come about recently with issues of you know concussions and recognizing this and being appropriate in the treatment and management of these things, let's talk a little bit about the non-surgical aspect of sports medicine that you do. First of all, how do you make sure that somebody's, let's just say, you know, high school or so, or going off to college, do they have to do a lot of evaluation to make sure they're healthy enough to play sports? Yes, there's the, the one of the most important aspects of sports medicine is the pre-participation physical examination. Uh, and why e- is that so important? Every every uh, student athlete, whether it's high school, college, re- receives one of these examinations. Uh, it's very important because it lets you be prepared. It's it's almost a screening tool. It lets you be prepared just in case an emergency does occur on the field, or even in practice, or at any time. Uh, doing a f- complete physical exam and getting a, a very detailed history of the patient can save not only the patient's life but also uh, the entire family and the entire sport and make your make your team a lot better. The most important things, for for example, is the blood testing and the cardiac screening. So, what are we looking at for heart screening? We will usually look for the most common one that we see is an enlarged heart or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, my brother's been Mr. Sporty his whole life. And my older brother actually had, has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. He Mm -hmm. was my guest. He came to visit in uh, August this year. So we actually had him on the show and had him talk about his story. Kind of older when he was diagnosed. He was like 42 or so. He finds out he has this genetic enlarged heart syndrome that was never picked up when he was younger, but he always kind of played pickup sports. He never really was on the sports team. I think he was probably the person who, had he been on the team, you would have picked up on. Yes. But since he wasn't on the team, he just played sports with his friends then he didn't get it diagnosed till later. Luckily, nothing bad happened because, you know, he had to have surgery and all these things. But that's the condition. That's the one you hear about. Somebody suddenly, young kid, playing sports, winds up, all of a sudden their heart stops, they're in the middle of a basketball game or some type of sport, and then they try and revive them and you just can't. Yes, yes. It's like the scary, don't ever have that happen scenario. So there are mm-hmm. ways to screen for that. Yes. That's 
Do you but, see it often? But, uh, you don't see it very often. It's pretty rare. But the, that's really the nightmare of a, of a sports physician. This is why we do the physicals beforehand. So if, God forbid, a patient collapses, an athlete collapses, we are prepared. We know why. You know what to do. We know what it, they could have an anaphylactic reaction to bees. They could have a heat stroke or heat exhaustion. Low sugar. Who uh, knows? Low sugar. They could, and Or even uh, uh, what's pr- more and more prevalent now is the sickle cell trait. Uh, about eight to fourteen percent of Af- African American uh, athletes uh, do have the trait. Whether it affects them, uh, their performance, you know, who knows? But if you notice someone's starting to have, go into a crisis or anything you know like that, you it. are prepared. You are ready, and that's the most important thing because all of these things I just named are pretty rare. But you you really want to be prepared for the worst at all times. Sure, rare doesn't mean it never happens. Somebody's yeah. got it. Yeah. I mean, who knew? My brother had it, right? right? He was always Mr. Sporty and always making me feel like the non-athlete and ha-ha. Um, but, you know, luckily he was taken very well care of and, and has been doing absolutely fine since he had this big surgery. But, you know, then again, you don't want to have to have something diagnosed later when something might have been able to happen sooner that could have prevented a complication. So if you were to go see your doctor and you get this evaluation done, you're given sports clearance. You can go play the sports. Do sports teams generally have team doctors? Are there doctors or is there somebody present at a lot of sporting events to try and make sure if there's a problem, somebody's there? Yes. The the on the events that usually need coverage are the high risk, high contact ones. That so includes, what would that be? Like that football? includes football, boxing, uh, mixed martial arts, hockey, and Occasionally, uh, they'll have uh, basketball, but that's not really as much of a high-contact one. Essentially, any any sport with a lot of trauma involved. So that that would be something where someone like yourself, someone who's sports medicine certified or a physician who has expertise in that area would be there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of controversy about issues regarding head injuries and concussions. And last Christmas or so, the movie came out, Concussion, that was looking at uh, the repetitive in injuries with the head and whether or not that made people at an increased risk of dementia and other neurologic issues. And with that, are there professional organizations that might be responsible for warning their athletes? I think the NFL was the big issue there. I know that mm-hmm. the National Hockey League has taken on some of this as well. What is your thought on concussions? Is it just kind of, and, and it's ironic, somebody told me, it's like a no-brainer, don't hit your head. I'm like, well, okay, kind of ironic. But what should we do to really help manage some of these issues with repetitive head injuries? Particularly, you know, we've got little league football players or little league baseball. I guess baseball isn't as big of a contact sport, but we've got these kids that are out there playing sports. What is their real risk for concussion? How do we protect them? That's a very uh, difficult topic. It's been discussed, and there's been more and more studies coming out of what we can do, different helmets, different, uh, even mouth guards that can gauge the force of trauma on, on someone's head. The really tricky thing about concussions is they're very subjective, and each it, they vary from patient to patient. Every person has a different way of telling you or of showing you that they have a concussion. Just because someone has received head trauma doesn't mean that they have a concussion as well. So the concussion symptoms, of course, include headache, vision changes, balance issues, even behavioral disturbance, um, and of course, any light or sound sensitivity. These sort of these symptoms can last for up to two or three weeks, and then they go away. Whether they had a concussion or not, uh, 
they someone could still have these symptoms. About roughly thirty-five to forty percent of people still ha- have headaches without having a concussion and things like that. So it's very, it is kind of tough to tell in that regard. Um, the way we can prevent them, uh, they they there all the studies that show of, of the of the helmets of the new technological helmet uh, designs that has not shown any benefit. It's uh, hard because you know when you think about it, your brain is kind of like an egg yolk. Mm-hmm. And it's in an eggshell. Mm-hmm. And you can try and protect that shell. But if you shake up that egg and that yolk is moving around, that yolk could be damaged. And that's kind of what can happen to the brain. So no matter what cushion you put around the egg, if you're shaking it around a lot, there could still be some damage. So helmets of all different types have benefits, but they can't completely prevent Concussions. So when we talk about wear a helmet, yes, there is a benefit to doing that, but it's not completely preventative. There's no way to completely prevent it, really. Exactly. There is no way. And it's becoming more and more tough because players are getting faster and bigger and the trauma to the head. The head's still staying the same size. So the, the, <laughs> That's true. The, so the, the brain is staying the same yeah. size, uh, we hope. Okay. So when you're having these sorts of things, what would be some advice you would give to people who are afraid that they've had a concussion? What should they do to self-monitor or to alert their family members that they might have had a head injury so that they can try and make sure people are keeping an eye on them? Are there any things that people could do on their own? You, you said it exactly there. Honesty is really the number one aspect of that you you have to be honest with not only yourself but with everyone around you if you're starting to notice you have symptoms and you don't want to say anything because you it's your senior year and you want to stay in the game or if there's any sort of you know dramatic influence in that nature uh you're really doing yourself a disservice uh you could have permanent damage there's something called the second impact syndrome which is the most a very a very uh What's second impact thing. syndrome? So you had Se- your first impact, and then that's yeah. over and done with. What's the second and impact syndrome? The second syndrome? impact syndrome, uh, everyone gets hit in the head the second time. You know, But the most important thing is that you've completely healed from your concussion from the first one. So the second impact is is when you take head trauma and you get a concussion while you're already concussed. Uh. So your brain is sensitive at that time because you're, essentially a concussion is trauma that was so bad that the the little vessels in your brain have broken or torn a little bit and caused... It's like a bruise on your brain, it's, literally. Exactly. It's a, a bruise on the nerves. Okay. Yeah. And it, so either the nerves or the vessels, they get, they get slightly torn and they need time to heal. So that involves mental rest, physical rest, up in, until you're asympt- asymptomatic through not only at rest, but you are asymptomatic after through doing your activity, going through practice and playing a full game. So... If you have still symptoms still even through that, and then you have another then, injury. Then okay. you get a second impact. Then you are you're a, you have a very high chance of having permanent damage. And you can't really change that at that no. point. Yeah, there is no way to make it go away. Mm-hmm. You kind of just have to figure out how to live right. with that and or recover as best as you can and make sure there's no third impact syndrome exactly. because that makes it even worse. So we've talked about a lot of athletes, but a lot of other people have head trauma as well. You could be in a motor vehicle accident. You could be in some other type of a situation, fall down the steps or hit your head Mm -hmm. in the bathroom. So it doesn't even have to be playing sports. After you've had this concussion, you have to really protect, or even before you've had it, you have to protect your head. You have to try your best to make sure that you're not injuring yourself again, which could also just inadvertently put you at risk. So even if you're older and you're just playing pickup sports on the weekend and you mm-hmm. hit your head, be careful. 
don't have that happen again if you can avoid it because then you could also be subjected to some of the same things. Yes, awareness is very important. And exactly as you just said, this concussion protocol does not just apply to athletes. It applies to everyone. And the way you can gauge them is if they're symptomatic while they drive or while, they, during, while they're doing activities of daily living. Instead of comparing it to like a practice in a game setting, you compare it to their work and their sleep and their, their activities. And if they're symptomatic during those times, then they need to do complete rest because, like, like as mentioned, you're at risk for having a second issue. Uh, so and you really want to try and avoid that. Yeah. So what would be if somebody out there says, okay, I, I want to get back into exercise. I want to get back into sports. I don't necessarily feel like I'm good enough to go join a team of some type. I kind of want to start practicing on my own. What would be some easy things that they could do? What are some simple sporting activities that anybody here can do to try and get themselves into better shape in order to help their joints? So if they're not yet going to be doing contact sports, what else can we do? Well, some of the ways to just get yourself started, uh, there's a lot of good uh, core modification exercises or just strengthening the core. Now, when people think of core, they think of just like abs, but that's not the case. It, pretty much from almost below your pectoral to all the way past your glutes and into your thighs is your core. And if you can strengthen that midline part of your body, your torso, then you can basically get into almost any sport. And so, how do and you succeed. do that? How do you how do you strengthen there's, your core? There's there's I mean, the the ways I, I actually do it. There's classes at the gym that involve uh, core strengthening. Core strength. So you could yeah. go to a gym, then you'd have the advantage of having an expert who knows how to do this, mm-hmm. show it to you, and then make sure you're doing it correctly. Right. And then you'd be able to make sure you're using the right muscles. Mm-hmm. So you could go to a gym. Lots of gyms available. Uh, can you do that at home? Yes. Why somebody once, I think a few months ago, said the plank is the best exercise to strengthen your core. And if you don't know what the plank is, ignorance is bliss. Because <laughs> once you do and you try one, you're going to wish you'd never tried that before. Uh, but it's actually really good for <laughs> you. Is, so you could plank, Google the, the plank. Yes. Okay. There's other activities. Sit-ups can help. But don't forget your back because that's part of the core strengthening. Right. So right. any any sort of balancing on on all fours or any any sort of way of holding your own body weight with mo- mostly your core, mostly your abs or your glutes really does help. There's various exercises like mountain climbers and things like that. That's the beautiful uh, part of our of technology these days. You can just Google search. If you just say core strengthening exercise, they'll get, you have a sheet of 100 in front of you that you could try. And, and don't try them all at once. Yeah, when, yeah try no. the ones that, you know, that fit you mm-hmm. first, and then you can try and uh, gradually – increase the strength, uh, the difficulty of them. Because one of the things that I tell folks is, you know, you can strengthen your muscles till the day you die, mm-hmm. that you can really help build up muscle strength, build up muscle fibers, do little exercises, even if you just get light weights that you put in your hands. And if you're watching your favorite TV program, or you're depressing yourself watching the news, not that they mean to be depressing, but it often is. And so you can even just do bicep curls. Or if you're trying to keep your body strong so that you can avoid osteoporosis, you know, try and do things walking outside with your legs. For people who are generally slim and skinny, add some weights to your ankles so you can build up your muscle strength, try and work on getting that extra benefit of the added weight to strengthen your joints. But, you know, if you're not lucky to be slim and skinny and you you need to lose weight, use that body weight to help you strengthen yourself. There's really no reason why we can't all try our best to get outside, do a little bit of walking if you can, swimming if joints give you issues. 
do, you know, bicycle riding. If you're not comfortable on the road, you can always go to, you know, like a gym and go bike riding there. Hire a personal trainer, have them show you how to use the machines that you want to learn how to use so that you can use them correctly and make sure that everything's going well. So all that sort of stuff really tends to tends to help. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, put on your walking shoes. Yeah. Yeah. And you do also have to watch out for, uh, as one of my previous mentors said, doing good badly. And that's doing a lot of exercise, but it's actually hurting your joints. And uh, there's various things that people, they they essentially call them overuse injuries because people overdo it. Like the weekend warriors you were talking about, the ones that they, you know, they run 100 miles in a week and they come to see me and and see me, why why do my knees hurt? And I'm telling them, well, maybe we can cross train instead of just running, keep your cardio up, do different things like elliptical or some swimming, you know, you keep... You 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 want to just don't use the same joints so you overuse them, but still keep your cardio up. But uh, it's, you got to kind of delegate with the well, and I think sure because some folks get so into you know certain types of circuit training and like there's the extremes, the people who never get up off the couch and the people who never sit down. And the best thing is to try and find some moderation somewhere in the middle. Yes. Fantastic. All right. Well, I feel like I've learned a lot this time. I'm sure a lot of other people have as well. Dr. Farzad Perarian, board certified internal and sports medicine. You're practicing at Naru Tower at the Infinity Life Center. And you can look that up online, infinitylifecenter.com. And also they provide all these various different services. But really the key is keep your joints as healthy as possible and hopefully keep yourself moving as long as you can. Well, thank you for listening. Our engineer today is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. Dr. Kathleen Kozak, we'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Woo!